In this chapter, we have four examples of selfishness before us, and they watched their family disintegrate before their very eyes. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but in your kindness, you and Christ the Son have sent the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who has sealed us until the day of redemption. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit comforts and guides and leads us into all truth, even the truth of your word. And we ask this morning, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this text to us. Lord, that we would, as we behold the sinfulness of man, the wicked depravity of the human heart, Lord, we can quickly point the finger and cast the eye of suspicion on the characters in this chapter. And yet, Lord, apart from the grace of God, so go I. We know, Lord, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's desperate. And yet, Lord, you've taken hearts of stone and by your spirit produced hearts of flesh. You've made us new. And so, Lord, we ask that as we open your word this morning and we see the sinfulness of the human heart, Lord, you would cut us to the heart. You would bring repentance in our own lives. That, Lord, we would live a life of consecration, of sanctification before you. Lord, now sanctify your word as we study it and illuminate it and encourage us as we're equipped in our lives to follow Christ. We ask this in his name and his name alone. Amen. Well, almost every American has heard of D-Day, Uh, which was, of course, the uh, day that the Allied forces landed at Normandy Beach and that turned the tide of World War II. But very few people have heard of Operation Bodyguard. And this was actually a critical part of the Allies succeeding on D-Day, defeating Hitler and the Nazis. And I just want to explain it to you for a minute. The Allied forces were planning the D-Day invasion for over a year, And the reality was it would only succeed if it were to catch the Nazis off guard. It couldn't have been something they saw coming. If the enemy caught wind of it, even 48 hours beforehand, the entire plan would have backfired. And that's where Operation Bodyguard came in. The Allies actually did want the Nazis to believe that there was an imminent attack coming. And so they wanted to build a well, a ruse, a false offensive. And so they did prepare what seemed to be an attack on the shores of northern France. They just wanted the Nazis to believe it was happening 150 miles away from Normandy to draw their attention and their supplies away from where the actual attack would take place. And so to do this, they launched what was considered still to be the most important modern decoy in modern warfare. So first they broadcasted endless hours of fictitious radio transmissions about the troops, about supplies, and about the movements of these uh, key elements. They even assigned George Patton, the famous military general, to lead this phantom force. They crafted fake aircraft. They had decoy landing crafts near the Thames River in England. They actually inflated inflatable tanks to make it look like they were real. They dropped hundreds of dummy paratroopers out from planes, which when they hit the ground, 
immediately began a recording, a sound of gunfire and grenade-simulated sounds when they hit the ground. And the Nazis believed all of this. They took the bait, and they focused all of their attention on this decoy offensive. And, of course, that resulted in the surprise true attack at Normandy where the Allies, we know, the rest of the story, they recovered the ground that turned the tide of the war. Now, as we study and open this chapter in Genesis 27, we also will see a great deceptive act that seems to prove successful. We have four characters in this chapter. We have Isaac, the son of Abraham, who's received God's covenant and blessing. And sensing that he's near the end of his life, he desires to pass the birthright blessing on to his oldest son, Esau. Esau, who is the firstborn, has already sold his birthright to his younger twin brother, Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, his name means heel catcher, deceiver, cheater. We've already seen how Isaac loved Esau, and yet his wife, Rebekah, she loved Jacob. So in an opportune moment, Rebekah schemes to assist Jacob in stealing his brother's blessing. But we've studied this previously. God had already decreed from the womb that the older will serve the younger, that Jacob would receive the blessing, that Jacob would receive the birthright. And so in this chapter, we're going to see that decree coming to pass, even as Jacob does so by fooling his father and really getting the best of his older brother. But we're going to see sometimes what we desire, often what we desire, does not come to pass the way we think, we think it will. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to break this long chapter into four sections and break it down and go through each one of these. We're going to see today the ruse in verses 1 through 17, and then the reluctance of Isaac, verses 18 through 29. We'll see the result of this deception in verses 30 through 40, and then the rage of Esau in verses 41 through 46. So that's a bit of an outline of this morning's text. And it's my prayer this morning as we study this chapter that you and I learn from the selfishness of the four people before us. And we understand how susceptible any of us are, all of us are, to capitulate to our sinful desires. Yes, even in Christ, we can still find ourselves following our sinful desires. Sir Walter Scott mused, oh, what a tangled web we weave when, we first, and when first we practice to deceive. Augustine and later Luther would talk about this idea of the, the heart of man curved in on itself. Luther would say this is the condition of man. He said he is so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. You see, each of the four characters before us this morning fall prey to having their heart's desires curving in upon themselves. Isaac, the father, he ignores God's decree from years earlier, and he seeks to force his blessing upon Esau instead of Jacob. Why? It's birthed from his desire. Esau will try to break the oath that he has made to his brother and then will desire sinfully to kill him. Rebecca will favor the son she loves and she will usurp her husband's authority. And then Jacob, the most obvious deceiver and desirer in this chapter, will go to extreme lengths to plot, scheme, 
and deceived to get what he believes is rightfully his. Now, we may be tempted to sanitize Rebecca and Jacob's motives and say they just wanted to fulfill what God had already promised. But at the heart of it, they're not seeking God's glory, but their own sinful desires. And they're trying to achieve God's blessing through sin. Everyone in this chapter is turned in upon themselves sinfully, not turned outward to God. And so my prayer as we study this this morning is that we learn from their failures and that we would strive to walk in repentance and to live our lives solely day of gloria for the glory of God alone. Amen? amen. Well, you're amen in it now, but wait till we get into it. So <laughs> let's look at the first section, the ruse. So notice verse one, when Isaac was old, his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he said, here I am. So if you're taking note at this time, it's estimated that Isaac is around 137 years old. Verse 1 tells us he's old and that his eyesight is failing him. It says his eyes were dim. And so there is a reason for him to suspect that he's not going to live much longer. Just as his father Abraham had blessed him uh, and not Ishmael, had given him all that he had, not to his other sons, now Isaac has that same sense of urgency. I now have to give the blessing that my father has given me, this covenant blessing that we have with Yahweh. And he wants to bestow this upon his son Esau. Now, when we talk about the birthright, the birthright was a double portion of the estate. And it was given to the firstborn. And remember, Esau had already sold that to Jacob. He had sold the entire double portion of the estate for one bowl of lentil soup. We could now expect that Esau would receive the smaller portion of the inheritance compared with Jacob. So that's the birthright, but the blessing was different. In fact, in the East, a blessing is more than just reading a will out loud in front of lawyers. It, it was part benediction and part prediction. Essentially, the blessing was the pronouncement of the father of what was to come in the life of his children. And this was not something that later you could revise or you could amend, as we'll see throughout the book of Genesis. Once something is spoken, biblically, but also in the Eastern mind, the words that you speak are equated with power. We might say in the West, this pen is what we use to mark ink with. But to the Eastern mind, they'd say that is where thought flows from. And so it's just a different way of thinking. In fact, Sir George Adam Smith once was traveling through the desert and some Muslims came to give his party their customary greeting, peace be upon you. And yet when they came upon them and realized they were Christians, uh, they said, oh no, we've spoken a blessing to an infidel. And they asked for the blessing back. They said, we spoke a blessing, we want it back. Uh, that's how important the blessing was. And this blessing was to be given to the entire family in front of all the children. We see that in Genesis 49, just taking note on the screen. Then Jacob, one day, many years from now, called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. That's the blessing. Sons, gather. I'm going to tell you what is to come. It's a pronouncement. It's a bit of a prophecy. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And then down in verse 28, it says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, as he gave a specific prediction to each one. 
Moses says, this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each one with the blessing suitable to him. That's what's supposed to take place. But here in chapter 27, Isaac attempts to give his blessing privately, if not secretly, to Esau. And so he invites his oldest son, go, hunt, prepare my favorite steak dinner. Not because food is necessary for the blessing. This isn't necessarily a covenant that he's making with his son. Uh, Most likely, he's asking him to prepare food simply because Isaac thinks he's about to die, and this may be his last meal. And he wants to have what he calls here delicious food such as I love. And even though the text tells us Isaac is physically blind, he's also blind to what he's doing. He's, remember, making decisions counter to what Yahweh had already declared. He knows, certainly, that his oldest son has not produced a character that's worthy of the covenant they had received with their ancestor Abraham. He is already married to despicable Hittite women. He was already proving to be a sexually immoral, unholy man, as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. And Isaac knows his wife Rebekah favors Jacob, so perhaps that's why he acts secretly and swiftly. It's clear he wants Esau to have the blessing, even if that goes against what God had planned. Matthew Henry in his commentary says this, quote, we are very apt to take our measures rather from our own reason than from divine revelation and thereby often miss our way. We think the wise and learned, the mighty and noble should inherit the promise, but God sees not as man sees, end quote. So here Isaac instructs Esau to go do this and yet his wife Rebekah is eavesdropping. And so she waits for Esau to leave and then she brings her son Jacob up to speed and her plan unfolds starting in verse eight. Notice in verse eight, she says to Jacob, now therefore my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. She's using the same language that Isaac is using. Verse 10, you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Okay, sounds straightforward enough, but there's a few problems, aren't there? First, Isaac may be blind, but he's not deaf. He, he still has a sense of touch and smell and hearing. And you know this, often when we lose one of our senses, our other senses can fill in the gaps and become more acute, more sensitive, more sharp. And that may be the case with Isaac. So his son Jacob, remember, has a different voice than Esau. And so when he comes in, does he have to deepen his voice? It's your father, Esau. Does he have to do that? I don't know. He, he certainly has smooth skin. He's one of those guys who probably exfoliates. He's an indoor guy. Esau, on the other hand, is sort of a walking carpet. He's hairy. One is an outdoorsman. One is a hunter. The other is in uh, cooking with mom. And so they have distinctly different smells. And so Jacob brings up these concerns. He's going to feel my hands. I have smooth skin, mom. He's going to hear my voice. He's going he's to smell. Like, this is not a good plan. I'm going to get a curse, not a blessing. But Rebecca urges him to obey her. Go bring the goats. 
and she's trying to make all of this happen through deceptive means. This wasn't Jacob's idea. This is his mother's. And so she's, she's seeking to make God's plan happen. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, it's better to leave God's decrees in God's hands. Yeah, she wants to do it in her own strength. So verse 14, he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. So this settles the taste test. Rebecca knew Isaac wouldn't tell the difference between her cooking and Esau's. Verse 15, we have the smell test. Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. So now he'll smell like his brother Esau. Verse 16, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Okay, that settles the touch test. Jacob now mimics his brother's hairy and dried skin. Verse 17, she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So the stage is set. The ruse has been prepared. Now let's see if it works. Moving to our second section, let's observe Isaac's reluctance, starting in verse 18. It says, so he went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? He's expecting Esau, but Jacob's voice pipes up. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me, okay? If you're taking note, this is roadblock number one. This is deception number one. Who are you? And he says, he has to lie, I am Esau, your son. Now sit up and eat. So that's roadblock number one. Look at verse 20, roadblock number two, deception number two. Isaac said, how is it that you have found this food so quickly? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Now I'm no hunter, but I'd say coming in within the hour, not only with the game, but with the game cooked and prepared and ready to eat, is suspicious. And so this is roadblock deception number two. But now he mentions God. He invokes God's name into the mix. Verse 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. Roadblock number three. Seems like dad's not buying it. And here's where it gets real, verse 22. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, he's, he's saying this out loud, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. This is roadblock number four. There's different voices. And so this is the critical moment of decision for his father. Verse 23 says he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Roadblock number five, direct ask, are you Esau? And he had been crafty and deceptive. He started with a lie. He upholds that lie blatantly here. And then we have, in a sense, roadblock number six, verse 25. He said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Does the food pass the taste test? And thanks to mom, Rebecca, it does. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near me and kiss me, my son. And it says that Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. This was the final roadblock. 
And this is the smell test. And this is what actually convinces Isaac that this is Esau, even though some things don't add up. At this point, this is what allows him to give the blessing. And so now he does. He gives him the blessing, verse 28. He says, may God give you the dew, give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, if you're taking notes, um, this is what the blessing consisted of on the screen. So this first was a blessing of prosperity. He asks for prayer for rain. There's also provision, an agrarian increase of grain and grape. This is a blessing of power. He says, may peoples and nations bow down to you. May they be disposed before you. It's, of course, a blessing of patriarchy, that you will be now the head of this family. You are now Lord over your brothers. And over all of the extended family, you are now the head. And finally, this is a blessing of protection. He calls upon curses for the enemies and blessings on the allies. This is reminiscent language of God's initial covenant, isn't it? Not only with Isaac, but also with Abraham. It was Isaac, not Ishmael, who would receive the covenant and would have the right to pass that on to the next generation. And now Jacob, not Esau, would have that divine right. And just to be clear, God had already declared this would come to Jacob and not Esau. And the fact that Isaac is blessing Jacob and not Esau here, it's more of a testimony to God's sovereignty than it is to the power of the words and the blessing. Don't get caught up in the words of the blessing. Here we should see the power of God's sovereignty, that, that God declares the end from the beginning and he wills what he desires to come to pass. It's all, to the, as we just sang, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so let's see what happens now as we look at the result. Look at verses, uh, verse 30, first of all. It says, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Now, I can't help in my mind's eye just seeing this unfold almost on a stage. And so if, if I'm maybe directing a, a, a play, I could see Jacob exiting stage left. He's dressed up in, in Esau's outfit. And as soon as he walks out and the door shuts, the, the other door on stage right opens. And here comes the same dressed Esau carrying the plate of food and saying the exact same things. And so it plays out very similarly. Isaac says, who are you? And he says, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And then, of course, we have this very graphic description of Isaac's response. It says in verse 33, he trembled very violently. It's in this moment he realizes the ruse is up. I've been deceived, and so is Esau, by our own kin. Of course, he asked the question, but he, he's got to know the answer. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I blessed him. And yes, he shall be blessed. And of course, Esau hears the words and then he cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and asks for a blessing 
as well. They both understand what has just transpired. Jacob has lived up to his name. It says in verse 35, your brother came deceitfully. He has taken away your blessing. And then in verse 36, Esau says, yeah, is he not rightly named? You guys did a good job naming him. His name means cheater, deceiver, supplanter, usurper. He's living up to his name. He's done this twice. He took away my birthright earlier, and now he's taken away my blessing. And then he asks him, do, do you not have a blessing for me? Is that it? You only have the one blessing? And realistically, the blessing was an all or nothing sort of thing. This wasn't portioned out where it was to be distributed equally. Well, one son gets half, the other son gets the other half. You're a twin, you're another twin. Let's, we'll just divide it up. No, he called Jacob Lord of his brothers. Esau is now servant. And this is unfolding exactly how God had decreed it. And so Esau's response again is to, uh, verse 38, lift up his voice and to begin weeping. Now, let's not be fooled here. Esau's tears are not out of godly sorrow or repentance for his previous folly. Esau is not broken here saying, why did I despise my birthright growing up? That was sinful to despise that. I, I realize my sinfulness and I need to lay this out and I'm weeping out of an act of repentance here. No, this is a cry of regret motivated by frustrated selfishness. In fact, the writer of Hebrews explains that this reaction of Esau is a warning for us as believers. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You see, Esau is an example for us of what it means to be frivolous with the great and sacred things of God. He, growing up, despised his birthright. This birthright would have been a double portion of the riches of Abraham and Isaac. Can you imagine that? The covenant that God had made with man. That God, out of all of the nations there at Babylon, had plucked one man out and he had shown him his grace and his favor. He had called him out from Ur of the Chaldees that, that he would be blessed and be a blessing. That from his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his descendant, the Messiah. And what did Esau do? Esau despised that. He traded that in. He cashed that in for a single meal. And so the warning for us is the blessing of the covenant is not to be forfeited for temporal things. We are not to hold the sacred things of God with disdain and trade the glories of the gospel for a sinful moment of temptation. Esau's not crying out to the Lord out of reverence for the birthright or the blessing. He's not crying out of reverence but now that it's lost, it's lost, he's expressing tears and rage and anguish. And I wonder if that's not a picture of all who have rejected God's covenant of grace, all who have squandered God's gift of salvation. They've squandered that for temporal satisfaction, that they too will endure their condemnation with weeping and with gnashing of teeth. Not brokenness over and sorrow over their sin, but weeping and gnashing of teeth 
out of frustration and rage against the king. So what will Isaac give him? Verse 39, what, what blessing does he have to give? Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, and in a sense, this seems to be a blessing, but it sounds more like a curse. He says, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now, I want to dissect this blessing briefly. So first, if you notice with me, Isaac uses a wordplay with what he had blessed Jacob with back in verse 28. But he's doing it now in an opposite sense. We take the blessing of Jacob in very similar language. Now he uses uh, the way the Hebrews constructed. This is actually uh, the exact opposite. And so instead of the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven that Jacob would be living on or under or have, Esau would now uh, dwell away from them. The ESV translates this very accurately. He says, away from the fatness of the earth. And being away from the produce of the land and from rain indicates that Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, would become nomads who live in the wilderness. And so if you're taking note, Genesis 36 tells us that the Edomites will dwell in the hill country of Seir, S-E-I-R. And if you look on the map, you can see where Seir is. It, is. it is away from the fatness of the land. It is in a desolate wilderness place. He also says in verse 40 that Esau would live by the sword. And this is a prophecy that's fulfilled in Amos 1.11. That he would serve his brother. And eventually, though, there would come a time where the Edomites would not be under the yoke of Israel. They would not be under Israel's jurisdiction as a people. In fact, in 587 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem. We read in three places. We read in Psalm 137.7. We read in Lamentations 4.17. And we read in Obadiah 10-16. through 16. We read there that the Edomites were overjoyed as they sat by and observed the destruction of Jerusalem. In a sense, the destruction of Jacob. Um, and this sitting idly by and celebrating would result in their own future judgment. In fact, the whole Old Testament book of Obadiah really correlates to this because this is a book written to a judgment against Edom, against Esau and his descendants. And so all that God promised to Esau would come to pass. One day, you will break his yoke. And yet, in that breaking, you will be judged, Esau. In fact, every single person in this chapter desire something and what they desire in a small sense comes to pass and yet it's something far different than they imagine. And so now let's look at this final section, the rage of Esau. Verse 41, it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. Earlier he despised the birthright, now he hates the brother. Esau said to himself, and it must have been out loud, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. He here is stewing and ruminating, fantasizing, if you would, the death of his brother. He's going to kill him. And so the, the root sin here, you could say, is malice and envy. Malice and envy. Paul told Titus in Titus 3, 2, and 3, lest we judge Esau for this. He, he told Titus, we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days, just like Esau, in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see, it's malice and envy which spur Esau's hatred of his brother and leads him to contemplate and then to plot his brother's murder. Now, we know this. Killing Jacob would not bring back what he had squandered. It wouldn't bring back what Isaac had blessed his brother with. And so he's driven here by blind, selfish vengeance. And if you've ever been driven by blind, selfish vengeance, then you are someone who has refused to submit yourself to God's justice and God's timing. And I pray that that's not the case, that you repent of that. And so he thinks here, dad's only a few days away from death. And so he must have been talking to himself and then eventually he began maybe stirring and, and speaking out loud because verse 42 says, the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So at some point he said this out loud. And so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Jacob got what he wanted, but he got a lot more. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Last time he obeyed mom's voice, there was a blessing and a threat, a problem. And as we'll turn the chapter beginning next week, we'll see the blessing of future brides and the burden of the father, Laban. So she says, Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. And then I'll send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? So notice with me, she uses the phrase a while. Stay with him, verse 44, a while. She's getting what she wants, but she's getting more than she wants because that a while ends up becoming over 20 years. And her scheme will work. This will save Jacob from being killed by his brother, but the result is that she's still losing Jacob. There's actually no indication that Re Rebecca will ever see her son again after this moment. And so as Jacob heads to Haran and to Laban, God is about to orchestrate the next chapter in the life of his covenant people. And we get a foreshadowing of this in verse 46. This is the, the next deception. She's now telling Isaac, here's why I'm sending Jacob away. And it's still a lie. Uh, maybe a half-truth, which is still a full lie. Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is a good excuse for Jacob to go missing. As we saw last week, Esau's two Hittite wives had caused misery. And so when Jacob returns, he's going to have at least two wives, many, many children. And we'll begin looking at that story unfolding next week. Now, as we consider this chapter um, and application, how can this chapter apply to our lives? One commentator noted this, quote, this chapter portrays an entire family attempting to carry out their responsibilities by their physical senses without faith, end quote. In fact, David Gusick says, in this tragic story, everyone lost. Each of the main characters, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, schemed and maneuvered in human wisdom and energy, rejecting God's word and wisdom. And nevertheless, God still accomplished his purpose, end quote. 
I want to give us four points of insight, uh, taking the opposite approach of where each of these people failed. And so if you're taking note, I'd love for you to jot these four points of insight down. First of all, in our families, we should seek to submit to God's decree. You see, there's no reason to believe that Isaac didn't know about God's decree that Esau would serve Jacob. And so instead of being subjugated to God's word, Isaac's heart is governed by his palate and his preference. Think about how many times delicious food is referenced in this chapter. He's governed by his his palate and his preference in his son. His natural affection for his son overruled what God had spoken. And, And even the whole scene seems to be rushed, doesn't it? Oh, my eyes are failing me. Quickly, we've got to make this happen. I'm going to die soon. I'm 137 years old. And what Isaac fails to understand is that he'll actually live for another 43 years. This whole thing is rushed and it's secret. And yet, God had other plans. In like manner, we can't allow in our lives what seems to be pressing to overrule what God has proclaimed. We can't let our natural affections override God's law. Oh, I I know what God's word says, but that should never be a sentence that ever comes out of a believer's mouth. I want to address the men here on this note because as husbands, as fathers, the thrust of submitting to God's word, it's initiated and it's sustained in the home by us, not by mom. You and I as husbands, as fathers, we set the tone. We model obedience. We model submission to God's word. We're to do that as the head of the household. The head of the household does not mean you get to control the remote. It means, no, that we model and submit to God's word. And as we do that, we then invite and instruct and then expect our families to follow us as we follow Christ. Just think about this, men. This entire chapter could have been avoided if Isaac put his love for God's word in the preeminent place above his love for Esau. We love our wives, we love our children, we love God's word. And we put God's word in the preeminent place. And so if you tell me this morning, I love my family, but I'm not following God's word, then I will call you a liar. Submit to God's word, submit to God's decree and watch God's blessing upon your family. Secondly, what we learn from this chapter, maybe from Rebecca, is to set our spouse ahead of our children. Well, this is controversial, isn't it? Rebecca favors the son she loves, and in so doing, she pulls the rug out from her husband's authority. And this is one of the mistakes that many parents of young children make. I've seen this happen. This used to happen when our kids were young, before they were instructed. So here's the scene. Junior comes in, and he comes up to dad and says, can I have some ice cream, daddy? And he's looking up with those puppy dog eyes. And you're like, of course you can, champ. And then Junior scoops this huge bowl of vanilla ice cream and drowns it in chocolate syrup. And you're sitting over there proud of him like, what a cutie. And then mom walks in the kitchen and she gives you the look. You guys know the look. She's like, I'm about to go Esau on you. You know the look I'm, I'm talking about. And you find out that little innocent and perfect Junior already asked mom for ice cream. And mom said, no, you have a cavity and no sweets tonight. So is that just an innocent mistake? Does, does this not happen all the time? 
with children and parents. You see, there's a, there's a more deceptive and subversive thing happening here. In the creation account in Genesis, we learned God joins the husband and wife together and says they are one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate, Jesus would say. And so I believe the, the husband and wife are a family before any children enter the picture. You're not starting a family when you have your first child. You're a family when you enter the covenant of marriage before God and witnesses. And often children can come into the marriage and they're a blessing from the Lord and blessed is the man whose quiver is full, of course. And yet, if we're not instructed rightly, our children can come in and bring division. They can come in and we set our children ahead of our spouse. This happens subtly. It starts off real innocent and sweet. We'll put the bassinet next to the bed and now the child is 12 and they're still sleeping in the bedroom. They sleep in between mom and dad and yet the wife is wondering, why is our intimacy fading? It's because your kids are sleeping in bed with you every night. If not taught correctly, children can come and do the ice cream thing, the division. And so when our children were young, we had to explain to our kids, no, mom and dad are one. We are one flesh. And so if you ask mom and mom says no, then that's asking dad. Dad also says no. And if they try to pull a fast one and still go to just one of us, then they incur discipline. They're causing division. They're being deceptive. And, and Rebecca doesn't understand this. She's putting her children first and the marriage second. And this runs against God's design. And so if this describes you and your family, I just want to lovingly challenge you to put the person you married, to put your spouse back in that rightful place of love and respect. And expect your kids to then honor your marriage as well. One of the children is not excited about that, but you'll be amazed at what happens. Husbands, when you put your wife in the place that she deserves, you cherish her, you, you love her. Wives, as you put your husband in the place of honor and respect, you don't treat him like a child, but you respect him, submit to him. God will bless you. Thirdly, we can look at this family and realize Thirdly, that it is up to us as Christians to seek our family's good. Esau tries to take back what he's already sold to his brother. And then when he's outsmarted, he's enraged and desires to kill him. Now, that's probably not the case with any of us here. You have not sought to kill a family member. But remember what Jesus taught us on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, he said, You've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Oof, that hurts, Lord. Jesus gets to the heart of the law, moving from the letter to the spirit. You may not have sought your family's demise or tried to harm them, but certainly we've all been angry. We've all insulted each other. But now in Christ, we seek each other's good, even if there are enemies. When mistreated, we don't retaliate, we bless. And that includes stepmoms, that includes daughters-in-law, that includes those family members we find just unlovable. We're to love. We're to seek the good of our family. Going further with this idea, our fourth application point that we learn from these four is on the opposite side, to serve our family, not our desires. Jacob goes to these extreme lengths to get what he desires and what he thinks is his. And he's not wrong. Rebecca, in a technical sense, is not incorrect. 
but she's thinking the end will justify the means. And the blessing, the birthright may have been secured by Jacob, but the means by which he obtained them was deceptive and disloyal. Now, what would this have looked like if instead Jacob waved off Rebekah's plot and he said, no, 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 mom, I trust Yahweh. He has decreed from the womb that I will be greater. And I don't need to seize God's blessing through deceit. I can trust that God will work on my behalf. He will bring his promise to fruition. See, Jacob doesn't serve his family. He puts his desires first. And sadly, this will be the last time Rebecca sees her son. I wonder how many families have been laid on the altar of our selfish ambition. You see, instead, God has put us in close proximity, one to another, to help be sanctified to check our hearts, to unearth our idols, to call us to holiness, to showcase forgiveness and kindness and service as we consider others better than ourselves. That's what he's done for us in the family. In this chapter, we have four examples of selfishness before us, and they watch their family disintegrate before their very eyes. But as we close this morning and we consider the gospel, we see the deceitfulness of this lecherous man, Jacob. And we're going to see this deceit continue. He's going to live up to his name in multiple ways. And we wonder, how could God extend the blessing of his covenant upon such a sinful, deceitful man? Romans 9 instructs us that God loved Jacob but hated Esau. And that was before they had done anything good or bad. How could God show his love and his grace to Jacob? Well, the opening up Genesis book communicates this very simply. It says, quote, God loved undeserving Jacob to demonstrate that God is God, can love anyone he chooses. He is sovereign. And in the same way that God chose Jacob before he was ever born, so God chooses everyone who ever becomes a son or daughter of the covenant. We do not come into the world looking for God. We are born like sheep, each one turning to his his or her own way, Isaiah 53, 6. If God had not sought us before we sought him, none of us would ever seek him. If God hadn't chosen us before we chose him, none of us ever would have chosen him. This is the genius of the gospel. This is how salvation can be absolutely free. God did not choose us because of anything we have done or will do, end quote. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was Jacob, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen? Let's stand together. We'll close in prayer and in song. The Lord of hosts, we thank you that you are with us, that you are the God of Jacob, our fortress. What gift of grace is Jesus, our Redeemer, there is now no more for heaven now to give. You've taken despicable deceivers like Jacob, like us, and have changed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. We do not deserve your grace, but we gladly welcome it. And we pray that our lives would reflect your goodness, your glory, and your gospel as we live with our spouses, with our children, with our siblings, with our parents, with those you've providentially brought near to us. We love them, and we pray that we would truly love them with agape love, that you would root out any bitterness or selfish strife within us, and that you would make us a blessing. Lord, there's no other hope, for there's no other gospel. 
May we embrace and may we embody the truth of your word and the truth of your gospel in and through our lives for your glory, for our brother's good, and for Christ's sake we pray this. Amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.